Hello and welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Christopher Nieper, the CEO of David Nieper Fashion, a well-established family-owned company based in Alfreton, Derbyshire. For upwards of 60 years, David Nieper Fashion has produced high-quality women's clothing, mainly selling directly to customers via mail order and now online. The firm employs several hundred workers and says its order book is booming, but like many British firms, it's suffering from supply chain disruption and a shortage of skilled staff. I started by asking Christopher Nieper, the son of the original founder, how his family business coped during the COVID pandemic. I'm Christopher Nieper. I've been in this role, managing director, for about 15 years but I've actually worked in the company for 30 years and of course I've grown up in the company because my parents founded this in 1961. This is our 60th year we're gonna have a big party soon and Lorraine's gonna be singing. <laughs> we are hopefully, aren't we, coming out of this Covid pandemic now. How has Covid been for your company? How has the company coped? Well, when COVID first hit, I remember it distinctly, March the 21st, 23rd, sorry, last year, the, the Prime Minister said, please go home, shut up shop and stop everything. It was a really nerve-wracking moment. We closed all the factories within 24 hours. Everybody went home. But then, of course, there was a shortage at the hospitals. There was a shortage of PPE. At first, a shortage of scrubs. And I was in touch with the government uh, and I had this idea that we could maybe make something for a volunteer task force, a bit like the London Olympics, a volunteer task force who would galvanise the country to shop for people, to find prescriptions for people and to keep all the wheels turning. But of course the challenge at hospitals became very acute quite quickly. So we went to the local hospital and they said, we're desperate, we are absolutely desperate for scrubs. Scrubs is a kind of tunic, top and a trouser that all the staff wear in the hospital. And they brought over an example of a pair of scrubs and we cut the pattern. You thought, I can make that? We thought, we can make that. We cut the patterns and at Easter that year, I came in with my family, my wife and my children, and we cut 2,000 garments. And then on Easter Tuesday, we had staff back in and started to make those. That's incredible. There must have been, just scrolling back, uh, Christopher, to those early days of COVID, and it's a fabulous story you tell about your company making PPE for local hospitals, circumventing NHS bureaucracy and Whitehall and just going straight to the hospitals. And I remember reading about it at the time. But for, apart from that huge act of, of, of altruism, it must have been really worrying when you couldn't open the factory for a while, when you were concerned about the future of the business. Looking back, are you surprised at the position you're in now with a really full order book? I must say, I hadn't anticipated quite how strong the orders would be. And we have done this at quite some cost to ourselves. We supplied everything at cost, or even at less than cost. But I felt we had to do it in the country's hour of need, and I would do it again. But here we are with really, really strong demand, customers queuing up to get to our door. And I think we've almost got a perfect storm here. We've had the COVID um, backlog, we've had Brexit, and now we've got a, a whole wave of British uh, fans for British product, British made, quality, made in England. We'll come on to Brexit because I'd like to know 
your views about how it's panned out for your company, how you've adapted, whether it's made life more or less difficult for you. But before we get to that, let's go back to this immediate wave of demand that you're coping with now, with order books so full you've basically had to stop marketing and keep important wholesale customers waiting. And I know you don't like to do that. What's, to stop, what's stopping you now just really ramping up your capacity to meet this wave of demand? What are the constraints? Liam, the one thing that's holding us back is skills, lack of people. We're not short of orders, as you said. We're not short of finance. We're not short of machines. We're not short of buildings. We're short of skills. And this sector that we're in, this textile sector, has become almost extinct from these shores. When I started my career uh, 30 years ago, this country, this area, this region was the kind of epicenter of British textiles. We had the lace market in Nottingham producing laces. We had leather goods from Northamptonshire. We had knitwear from Leicestershire. And we had fashion made all over this area, Derbyshire and further north into Yorkshire, Leeds, etc. But of course, it's all gone. And we're one of the very few that are left. And over the last 10 years, as companies have closed, we've of course been able to hire staff and bring in skills. But eventually that pool of skilled staff has gone down and down and down and down and down. And we're now almost the only company left. Now what that means is that the average age of our workforce, of course, has gone up and up and up. And two years ago, I think the average age of our workforce was 54 years old. So that's a problem in itself for the long term. So we have to either go overseas ourselves and start manufacturing offshore ourselves, or start all over again with young people and recreate it from, from the bottom up again in this country. How can you make sure that you're here in another 60 years time? I, th I think you know, we've been loyal to a local workforce here for 60 years. We've never gone offshore. We've always trained and worked with local people. And I think we have a responsibility to carry on doing that. Now, we face another challenge here, which is that the school in this town, and we're a small town with about 25,000 people, the main secondary school in this... It's a form of mining town, isn't it? That's exactly right, a former coal mining town. And, of course, when a, a core industry like that disappears, as it did uh, in the 70s and 80s, then, of course, all the jobs go and all the supply chain goes, and it takes the heart out of the town. So it's our responsibility, almost, as a long-term... A family company invested in this town to look after that if we possibly can for the future. And unfortunately, the school in this town was failing. And it was failing really, really badly. It was the worst failing school in Derbyshire. And it was only one third full. And so we formed a trust, an education trust, and have sponsored the school in its entirety. And I'm very pleased to say that after three years, the intake has tripled. And today, the school is oversubscribed for the first time in 30 years. Now, how does that help us with skills? Well, it doesn't immediately, because of course these are teenagers, um, but it does in the very long term, and it doesn't just help us, it helps the whole local economy, all employers, private sector and public sector. And what we've done is we've got those key employers in this town, in this region, to support us in the school. You're a major employer in this town, you're employing 250-odd people here, what are your views on the government's efforts at levelling up so far? Do you believe that the Conservative government wants to level up, can level up, or is it just some kind of a 
slogan? Of course, of course it's a slogan, but I hope the government will actually do something to make, some, to make it work. And if they're to level up, it has to work in towns like this. If it doesn't work in towns like this, then levelling up hasn't worked. This is a town, and it's typical of a town of which there are at least two or three hundred of these all over the UK, but particularly in the Midlands and North, in the former Red Wall seats. 20, 30,000 people, roughly. 20, 30,000 people, perhaps where uh, there was a coal mining industry, perhaps where there was steel, perhaps where there was shipbuilding, or perhaps coastal towns. And these are the towns which will um, create the result of the next election and the one after. It will be determined here, won't it, places like this. These are swing seats, aren't they? There are swing voters in these seats. The swing seats are, which are those that determine the result of nearly all elections. So if levelling up is going to work at all, it must work in towns like this. And I think they should get behind what we're doing. We need much more industry. We need much more export. We need much more connection between schools, education, and the world of work. We need a better connection between skills, the apprenticeship levy, between universities, and the world of work. We need all of these things to feed into growing the economy from within towns like this. So levelling up, for me, is about these forgotten towns. It's about empowering people to, with opportunity and with education, to earn their own self-esteem and their own income and make their own career from within towns. It's not a silver bullet from Westminster. We've spoken, haven't we, Christopher, about your proposal for a so-called skills tax credit. So if companies invest in skills, they can offset that against their tax if they... If they put money into local schools to enhance skills and training, again, that counts as a tax credit. Why do you think the government's not doing that? That's exactly right. There is no incentive for the world of work to get involved in education. There is no incentive for educational schools to get involved in the world of work. As things currently, as stand. Things currently stand. Now, other countries do this. So I think this could be an absolute winner for the government to get the two together and incentivise it. It doesn't mean... Um, wasting taxpayer cash because a tax credit only works for successful companies in growing sectors of the economy. It automatically directs the energy to where the economy needs it. So we need a balance between uh, universities uh, doing the right courses in the right proportions for the needs of the economy. And we need those courses to be relevant. We need the skills, knowledge and behaviours that they teach to be relevant to today's world of work. And I'm not sure all universities are delivering that. How would you describe, Christopher, the current state of skills training in the UK? It's a, it's a, it's a disgrace, really. The whole sector has disappeared and there's no, there's no method of training skills. So we've had to form our own training academy. We've had to run our own trailblazer to create new apprenticeship standards. And that's fraught with difficulty because when you get together a group of employers, of course, the standards you come up with are the lowest common denominator. So you're dumbing down the skills already. But we've, frankly, we've got to just pay for it ourselves. So it's very tempting to go overseas where the skills are already there and just buy the product in. But that doesn't help towns like this. It doesn't help the economy.
So I think if we're responsible about this, we've got to just generate the skills ourselves. We've got to run the business and make a profit and steer that into the next generation. And frankly, we've got to use the skills that are here, use these people to pass on skills to the next generation. Let's talk about the supply chain. There's lots of talk from business folk like you with respect about the supply chain getting much tighter. You've talked about issues in terms of getting hold of suitable labour. What about materials? I know your company's made a major investment in the last couple of years in order to improve uh, your own management of your own supply chain. Supply chain, of course, is a huge challenge for, for any company. And in our case, it's where do we get our raw materials from? Um, where does the cotton come from? We can't grow the cotton in this country, so we have to depend on that at least. But thereafter, we can do it. And what we have done is we've made a major step, as you say, perhaps you've just been there, to, we've called it Beresford House. So in that building, we're now putting together more than two-thirds of all of our supply chain comes from ourselves there. And that's really recent. In the 60-year history of this company, you've only just started doing that yes. in the last few years. We right? did that exactly to coincide with Brexit, because I realised that Brexit might make a problem with the borders, but it might also make an opportunity. So by bringing that supply chain in-house, we've eliminated the problem of customs on nearly all of those different fabrics. We used to have 50 suppliers of different fabrics, and now we need one or two. And they were, they were in, in mainland Europe? Mainland Europe, many different uh, suppliers, different countries in mainland Europe, etc. But by having them all in, 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 in one, if you like, one base cloth or two or three base cloths, like a cotton or a silk or a swimwear fabric, etc., we can then print that into any, any pattern we like and we can dye it into any colour we like. And we can do this without wasting, you see, because if we make it just in time here in the factory, we can make the quantity we need. In other words, you don't overorder fabric for a particular garment that may sell less than you think and then get left with that fabric. That's right. So we see what sells. And if we need 500 metres, we can make 500 metres. If we need three metres, we can make three metres. If we need 86 metres, we can do 86 metres. And we can do it within a week. So we bring the supply chain not just in-house. We make it quicker and we can have much better quality and we can look after our customers better. And there's no customs problem. You just mentioned Brexit there. You, you, you've used Brexit as an opportunity to tighten up your supply chain if you want to bring the production of your major input fabric largely in-house, as you say. On top of that, how do you think Brexit is going? Or given that we've been overwhelmed with COVID ever since the transition period end, do you think it's too early to say? Well, Liam... In the last month or two, we've seen our French sales at triple the level of last year and our German sales at quadruple the level of last year. So I don't think consumers in these countries are bothered about Brexit. If they see um, a garment that they like, a style they like, a price they can afford... And you're marketing all over the internet and catalogue, so exactly. it doesn't matter where people are. So actually, it's proved a huge success for us. It's a huge success for the company, for jobs. Of course, we're feeding it into education in this town. No, it's worked out really well. What do you think about the government's actions more generally, the macroeconomic management? I know you think a lot about this, the, the, the way the economy is conducted and controlled, what the Bank of England's doing, how the Treasury's managing its finances. As a business leader, as somebody who has to make his own books balance at the end of every tax year, 
What do you think of what's happening on a national scale? I think for us, it's astonishing that the country can have such a massive, eye-watering national debt. I don't think any of us, uh, even in our private lives or in our, in our business lives, can imagine how that can be sustainable in the long term. But of course, this is happening in nearly all Western economies. So I think that's a problem for us long term. Do you think that in the end, this macroeconomic management, big budget deficits, big national debt, lots of money printing by the Bank of England. How, how, that, how will that end, Christopher? Well, the fear for us is it brings back exactly the scenario we had in the 1970s. Of course, inflation has got to come in. I've been expecting inflation to come in for ever since the 2008-2009 crash, but it hasn't yet. But that latent inflation must come in, and that will cause us wage pressure, it'll cause us supply chain pressures, and of course, it'll increase prices. And that brings with it a raft of other problems in, in the economy. I hope that doesn't happen. So you think inflation is one of the biggest problems that the UK faces at the moment? When you look for the next three to six months, 12 months down the line? It has to happen, Liam. It has to happen, and we have to be ready for that. But of course, we can't change our prices very quickly, and neither do we want to. But if we are to rebuild our economy with industry, you know, the, the manufacturing sector um, accounts for more than half of our exports and half of, or more than half of our research and development. If we're to rebuild that, you know, we need to inject energy in there. We don't need too much inflation. We need probably a more competitive currency. We need to be able to export to improve our balance of payments. Talk to me about the furlough scheme. As, as a business leader, a business owner, to what extent have you used the furlough scheme and what are your feelings now? We're in September, furloughing is meant to come completely to an end at the end of this month. We've only used the furlough scheme a little bit at the beginning, but my sense, well, as we got into last summer and autumn, is that the furlough scheme has been quite generous possibly a little bit more generous than it needed to be compared with what has been happening in, in Germany, for example. So 80% is quite a generous amount to stay at home. Now, without that, I think we possibly could have produced a little bit more. What do you think the implications have been of that, as you say, generous furlough scheme for people trying to run companies and the broader economy? Well, for us, it's been a handout, hasn't it? But what does it do for us long term? Because at some point, this day of reckoning must come. At some point, we as a country, which means us as a taxpayer, have to pay all this back. So I think it's just storing up a problem for the long term. And finally, Christopher, you are passionate about your business. You are passionate about manufacturing here in the UK in general. What would you say to somebody who argued that Britain, as a manufacturing power, it's not world-class, we're, we're past it. We're a service sector economy now. Why don't we just move on? Come here and talk to us. Come and talk to some of our staff and see how they feel. This is, there's some real passion in this country about manufacturing. Why can't we make things again? This is, instead of build back better, let's make our own way. Let's make stuff in Britain and pay our way in the world. Christopher Nipas, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on GB News. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. 
do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily TV show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.